Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash leftanchor. Uh, if you want to support the show and get access to extra episodes, um, you can sign up there. If not, that's also fine. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek, and we're very honored and privileged to have Phil Chrisman here, professor, University of Michigan, a wonderful human being, uh, just a, a, a great person who's an essayist you should read. Uh, there's a lot of publications that he's been in, Hedgehog Review, a blogger, he's got a great newsletter, and, uh, and we're very excited to talk about his new book, Midwest Futures. So uh, welcome, Phil, and, and please just let, uh, let us in the audience know anything else about yourself that we should know. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, it's an honor to be on here. Um, I should probably say that I'm a lecturer and not a professor because I feel like some status-obsessed person <laughs> will get a hold of this and come from my fucking head. Yeah, uh, so you're slightly less human, right? Is that how that works? I am 5% less human. Yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure that's... <laughs> I belong, or, or you know, I belong. I belong to the international proletariat. I was going to say, but but you're you're more aligned with with us, us here on Left Anchor and our our struggle. Well, what does a what does a lecturer do but profess things in a lecturer? Seems like it's sort of you know precisely. All- it's a distinction without a difference, except like in your bank account. In, indeed, I don't even imagine that you merely lecture. I, I would guess you use the Socratic method and other pedagogical tools as well. <laughs> I, use, I use many pedagogical tools. So I ask, <laughs> I ask questions. Uh, you know, I, I have them talk to each other. It's crazy. Well, one thing before we dive into the book, I have a lot of um, sympathy, empathy, and camaraderie and solidarity with you because I am a professor who, oh, sorry, I, whatever title we should call ourselves, I... Um, <laughs> I'm in the classroom as well with, uh, you know, 18 to 23-year-olds or whatnot. And I also curse in class from time to time. And so I found a lot of kind of camaraderie that, 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 that you also have, uh, have been known to do such a thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, this is going to sound probably disingenuous, but I didn't realize it was a big deal to people until I started teaching at a higher status university than some of the other places where I've, I've worked. And, uh, <laughs> That 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 like I don't know upper middle class white collar affect thing, it it becomes it becomes a it becomes a whole thing, man. I don't know. The higher status the school, the more bullshit it comes with, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what what is definitely not bullshit is this beautiful book of yours, and I don't just say that um, because you're here with us right now. I say that because it reminded me of some things we've read recently that really resonated with me. It felt a lot to me. Um, in the way that like Jed Purdy's new book seemed both uh, yeah. not just evocative um, of the times and themes that are really at the forefront of our struggle with inequality and racism and climate change, but it, it felt so deeply personal and to, to kind of express in form um, the kind of struggle that is within you that seems to be mirrored in kind of not just the political and social struggles, but our, our national struggles. Uh, so, so it really, it, I was really feeling with you as you were thinking about your identity, uh, thinking about your history, thinking about how that connects up with uh, these contradictions and conflicts that we're all going through. So uh, I guess just to start, thank you for, for kind of allowing us into that, that interiority into, into those, um, those struggles and battles. And um, maybe tell us how you got going on this project. Why, why, uh, Midwest Futures was was the book for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I'm actually reading the Jed Purdy book right now. It, it, he rules. He's. Yeah. So, so I, I felt that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I don't know. I. I. I, I think. Um, I probably started thinking about the Midwest as as like a topic that I wanted to look into because uh, of Marilyn Robinson. Um, because of her essays and, and fiction. Um, <clears throat> so that, that, you know, that, that would be starting like almost 15 years ago. I mean, Gilead came out in 2004, I think. So, um, uh, tell us, tell us more about that. Who, who is she? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Marilyn Robinson is, is one of the five <laughs> living 
greatest writers of the English language. She's a, in my opinion, she's a she's a novelist, creative writing professor at Iowa. She writes uh, she writes these she writes these essays that are, have been a very big inspiration to me in terms of the kinds of essays I want to write. In that they are uh, they are very long. They are very they are shamelessly digressive and weird. She assumes that the audience can read and has access to a dictionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Um, and, and, and she just writes about whatever the, whatever the hell she seems to want to write about, which, which I enjoy. But, you can say um, fuck, by yeah. the way, if you wanted to say whatever the fuck you could, that, could have, <laughs> that, that, that would have been okay. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> wow. We're really getting transgressive here. Um, but like in her, her book, uh, death of Adam from 1998, she has an essay about, the Midwest is a place that was sort of um, that was important to the abolitionist struggle um, that abolitionists poured into that part of the country uh, in an effort to like ensure that those states would not become slave states. Um, and and I had not, I didn't know that. I didn't, hmm. I didn't know. I just never thought about the Midwest or being a Midwesterner at all. Um, and I, so that's probably what put the first, um, first notion of it in my mind and then um you know it was just i did a little bit of research on midwestern literature when i was in graduate school the first time and and then um as as is said in the book um a big catalyst was when my wife and i moved from north carolina to um back to uh, back to michigan it was i mean i had grown up in michigan um she's a southerner and she would ask me uh, whether midwesterners had cultural traits and and what they were and what midwestern in particular what midwestern cooking was which i just had no idea uh, <laughs> that seemed that seemed like that question seemed to me like one of those noam chomsky sentences like colorless green ideas sleep fury <laughs> Western cooking, like what the, f- <laughs> we just eat food, you know, um, and and then I, you know, and she kind of pointed out how that it's weird to think of yourself as not having a, a region, or your region is not having a history or a culture, and she pushed me on that, and then and then she, we both started noticing the same thing in our students that if you ask uh, kids from Michigan um, where they grew up. Uh, you, you get two answers. If they came from anywhere, like within a hundred mile radius of Detroit, they say Detroit. Uh, <laughs> and other, other, or, or, or uh, same with Grand Rapids. And then otherwise, they say, "Oh, it's come from the middle of nowhere. It's, uh, it's nowhere. You've never heard of it. It's, it's like anywhere else." <laughs> it's a weird way, way to think about yourself. And then, um, yeah. So that's kind of what what really got me started. It was interesting because just, and I don't know if this was intentional from the outset, but you discover all these contradictions, you know, it's a, it's a place, um, that is kind of the everyman place, you know, and yet it's, it's kind of nowhere and everywhere and no one can agree where it is, but everyone knows where it is. It's, and it's the middle, but it's not really, it, it's just like fraught from the very beginning with, um, kind of, it's with mystery, which is strange for a place that seems stereotypically to be, you know, the opposite of mysterious and, and complicated, straightforward and bland, you know, are the stereotypes that, uh, some of them anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, <clears throat> and there, there's a whole, uh, on the flip side of that, there's a whole strain of Midwestern weirdness and Midwestern Gothic. Right. <laughs> uh, I, there's this book that just came out that I, I haven't read yet. And I really want to called Midwestern strange, uh, that, talks about like you know ufo sightings in kansas type of stuff um you know all of that is is a very real uh, part of the history but right and there's horror horror is a it's it's a very common genre like as you say right uh there's there's deep strains of gothic and horror and noir all all those kinds of things um and and as for the contradiction thing i mean i that's something that i that's something that I find inspiring as a writer is, is when I notice that there's um, mutually, incont- mutually incompatible ideas in my head. Mm. I feel like, oh, this means that this is <laughs> the presence of pure ideology. Like, <laughs> I mean, 
can't do a spin of a Zizek. Zizek yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll have to throw in a Zizek uh, clip, you know. As a, as yeah. A... <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the presence of the slip ideology. It's a pure... That's pretty good, right? That was uh, good, man. Wow. Yeah. Off the cuff. At least uh, recognizable. Well, no, but I do see a lot of like Hegelian, especially at the end. And again, I don't know if this is just organically developed, uh, but it was very cool. Like the struggle to not be able to pin down what it means to be Midwestern or what the history is, because it's fraught with abolitionists and Klansmen. It's fraught with, you know, um, the, the capitalists who actually are central planners. Uh, you know, it has so so much in it that's rich and interesting um, that that one of the things that was beautiful for me is how you tied that to what it means to be human. It's never accomplished. It's, it's always on the verge, right on, on the verge of uh, hopefully getting better. And (laughs) it's a bright, it's a process of becoming that has, um, you know, both hope and despair. And and I don't know. So, so at what point did you, did you understand the kind of the voyage you were on in writing this and thinking about these things to be kind of a microcosm of the human journey? Oh, that's a really, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I have an answer for it. I mean, it, it feels like that's a move that is really hard for me not to make to the point where I, I feel like the next couple things that I write, I'm going to kind of challenge myself to not end by saying, oh, but isn't that just the human race? Right. Uh, like I have this essay I just recently wrote about uh, why I like bad movies. And mm. that's basically the end of that is that I say we're all bad movies. So like I don't my brain I don't know how impressed you should be with that. I think my brain just be, might be wired that way. Well, it's it's funny you say uh, and I haven't read the piece on bad movies, but for me what makes a good story well told a good movie is something that is very particular and distinct something that you haven't had access to or don't know anything about. And so you're interested in it for its particularity. But what resonates are the universal themes or the things that are essentially human expressed through that particularity. And so so for me, a, a good film is always or is, tends to be that combination of the particular and the universal. Yeah, the, the accessing, uh, like, I feel like that's the only, um, I mean, literary critics don't even like the word universe anymore. Oh, uh, fuck them. I know, I'm... <laughs> Those fuckers. I don't know. I'm, I'm Whatever. Like, we know what we mean when we say that, right? Like, right. It is. It's a. It's a thing. We're a species. You know. Uh, we're not all members of the species of one, but I, I feel like we only access that through whatever that is by. Yeah. You, if I cut Ryan, does he not bleed? Look, I'll prove it. Yeah. The I. I could write an onion article here that like like America's literary critics running desperately low of supplies of new things to problematize. (laughs) (laughs) I would rather gesture at the universal. Yeah. You can only gesture at it. (laughs) Tell you could and the gesture must be the middle finger. Fuck off, Universal. (laughs) If you if you whisper too loudly, the universal gets mad, it wakes up. It, it yells at you. It this is precisely house. why I liked your book so much because it it wasn't that fucking pretentious bullshit like the distinction between lecturer and professor. It was like, <laughs> very, you know what I mean? Like it was very real about what it means to be human and your in your particular uh, investigation about your life and its situatedness and your history and um, yeah. So so I mean, yeah. Again, fuck those literary critics. <laughs> <laughs> But but tenderly, hopefully, <laughs> make um, sweet yeah. love to them. And in, in, yes, I, uh, yeah, I I um may, maybe coming well coming to the uh, back to the idea uh, particular facts. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit, you know, about the particular town. I've forgotten the name, of course. Where where you came from in Michigan, um, which is something that was interesting to me. You know, you you talk about the you know, mysterious, like what is the Midwest is one of the things people love to argue about on Twitter, what states are included in the Midwest. And there really isn't one right answer. because it's a very nebulous yeah. uh, concept, but I, I come from a tiny town in Utah, which is not at all nebulous. Uh, but it's, m- most people don't really know about Utah other than just like the most like ridiculous caricatures, which, you know, have some element of truth to be honest. But so you could tell us, you know, about like, what is that place? And like, what, what did you sort of take away from it? Uh, you know, l- growing up and then later in your uh, life. 
lot of complexes, uh, severely <laughs> rabid self-esteem, the deep belief that I would never tongue kiss a woman. Uh, have you, have you done that yet? I'm, I'm, I'm happily married. Everything well done. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Thanks guys. Uh, no, I, I, I grew up in Alma, Michigan, uh, which is, um, I mean, I suppose one kind of, I guess, almanac fact about it would be that it's very, very close to the geographical middle of the, the mitten. Can you, I knew you were going to do the hand thing. Can you show us on the hand? Show us on the hand. Uh, point to it. Show, Can you point? Show us on the hand where the hand touched There it is. And that, isn't that like above Ann Arbor? Is that where that is? Uh, yeah, very much. It's like three hours. Above. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, so the the actual middle of the mitten is in St. Louis, Michigan, um, and I, I mean, okay, so this is a very characteristically Midwestern experience to have. I grew up in Elma, Michigan. I did not know shit about Elma, Michigan, uh, ex- except that I was, you know, glad to not be there anymore until <laughs> I with no 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 shade to anybody. I just you know, uh, this is the negation of I, the negation. I, I, <laughs> yeah, high school stuff for everybody. Uh, but uh, I didn't know shit about it until I started researching the 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 article that this book grew from and 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 this book. Um, so like, yeah, it turned it it's a it's a farm town. It turns out that there are two separate dissertations about my like nowhere town that nobody's ever heard of wow. that are both from staff the twentieth century. Um, I uncovered both of those in the course of doing the research. Um, it it turns out that I I, I remember I worked at uh, I worked at McDonald's in high school, right? And uh, the people from St. Louis who also worked there were always super pissed whenever I mentioned being from Elma, even though like we were in Elma, they would be like. <laughs> Oh, you Elma people are such snobs. It was like very uh, Shelbyville. <laughs> and I'd be like, what the fuck do you think we have to be snobs about? Like, why are you guys so defensive? And then I found out like the, y- you know how every small town had like the one uh, Gilded Age millionaire at the, at the beginning of the century. Like every town had one or you, you don't really have a town, right? Uh, and it, everything gets named after that person. Our Gilded Age millionaire uh literally went and broke up uh, a, like railroad tracks that were in the process of being built to St. Louis to keep it from becoming a hub. Wow. Uh, and so apparently we've hated each other ever since. Now what's funny is I didn't, I, I lived there for 18 years. I didn't know that we had any cool stories like that. Uh, <laughs> it's, a wild, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, Gilded Age millionaire intentionally cheats. Town he wasn't your mascot. The the Gilded Age millionaire billionaire no. was not. Yeah. No, our our you're mascot the, was you're the fucking. E- pants. <laughs> no, it should have been the, the Elma Gilded Age yeah. uh, millionaire hired thugs. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't know any of this stuff. But it was uh, you know when I was growing up, it was very it was. It was like a very 80s Bruce Springsteen album, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, places closing. And um, even like my sister's about 10 years older than I am. And we we have conversations about how when she was a teenager, it still felt like uh, the town was a place where people felt they could have a future. And just nine years later, when I was in mm. high school in mm. the 90s, in the middle of like Clinton era neoliberalism that that feeling was gone Mm. yeah that's the other thing so so the title midwest futures it it seems like we've covered why midwest was part of the project um but now maybe is is that the connection to why futures was the other half is that something that from the outset you knew would be part of the the thrust of the of the book or um did you discover that that was kind of a, a significant theme was was the idea of whether um peoples in this region uh, today and in the past, how they've shaped the future, if they feel like they have a future, like how, how does the futures bit uh, come in or how did it play, play in for you? Well, I definitely, uh, the, the, the essay that I wrote a couple of years ago for Hedgehog that this grew out of, like I, toward the end of my research for that, I had really noticed um, how much uh, uh, the Midwest 
was kind of a place where a lot of interesting futures had been tried out for the United States at different times in history. Um, and so I was interested in, in looking into that further. And then, and I was also interested in the, the kind of economic history. Um, and so when Anne from Belt asked me, uh, Belt Publishing, my uh, publishers, um, when she and I first started talking about the book, I thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, do a deep dive on the economic history stuff and kind of, I, I, I thought I was being real slick, like, uh, like I punning on futures in the sense of imagine, you know, like Mark Fisher. Oh, it is, it is very slick. I gotta say, Phil, when I read the phrase purchasers of futures, I could think at least like a triple entendre there. That was very cool. Cause yeah. you're, right. Like maybe talk about like what purchases of futures was about in that context, because there were, there was like several senses in which that phrase could be, you know, take meaning. Yeah. I mean, so the Chicago board of trade is where, you know, the idea of like buying and selling futures of commodities um, became a thing. And, and when I found that out, I thought, wow, this, this it really seems that, like the Midwest has been central to modern economic history in a way that I had never really, really realized before. And then you start thinking about just what, how fucked that is that you can, you can make these bets on <laughs> commodity prices and, and, and that that's a, a major part of our economy and, and, you know, how strange and strange and interesting and, and also probably, you know, fucked up that is. Um, and it, I, I learned about all this stuff by reading uh, William Cronin's book, uh, Nature's Metropolis, which I don't know if you guys have read that book, but it owns. Oh, yeah, very good. The, yeah, the book whips ass. Um, so, yeah, that that was also part of the story that it, I wanted to try to come to understand and, and tell. Um, and then, you know, I was reading a lot of, I, as I've, I've mentioned Mark Fisher already, I was reading a lot of Mark Fisher this whole time too. And the, the idea of the foreclosing of the sense of the future. So yeah. it felt like maybe you can tell everybody like, who Mark Fisher was, cause he was a, a brilliant person that everyone should read. Yeah. So Mark, Fick, I mean, his most famous book, which like you can Google this and find a PDF, like right the second capitalist realism. Is there no alternative? 2009. You can read it in the afternoon. It will change your fucking life. It's so good. Um, I don't, I don't really know how to describe him. Like yeah. he, he's, he's like a mad academic slash, or he was, uh, you know, God, that's the soul. Um, he was like a combination academic slash kind of for a while 90s style literary theorist, but he got better. Um, and uh, music critic and cultural critic. Uh, and his the, the work of his that is, is most moving to me has to do with the idea that uh, it no longer feels like, like our civilization is preparing itself for any sort of growth uh, or, or movement in, 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 in some better direction. It feels like the future is just going to be remixes of shit that's already happened. And, and was it Mark Fisher you were thinking of when you, you discussed being haunted by lost futures? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really great, like, I mean, Marianne Robinson and, and uh, Mark Fisher – uh, and then you bring in Greg Grandin. It's, it's a really interesting um, set of influences and set of references that you that you bring in um, to kind of explore these themes. And I, I think it's uh, it's really beautiful because uh, you know with Greg Grandin you have obviously the question of the frontier and and the edges and boundaries of of what the Midwest is. And and of course you, know, you take that into a, the question of a moral frontier. And, and so maybe you could talk a bit about. Um, yeah, so some some of those influences or some of those meditations. Yeah, I I really enjoyed writing this book because I feel like I found out I found a way to like, um, just read a shitload of books and feel like I was I was doing work, which is <laughs> yeah. life, man. Um, <clears throat> that is, by the way, why we love having guests on. It forces us to read. Yeah, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> uh, so, but the the question was just say more about the influences. Oh yeah, so, or or of I, I mean the idea of the relationship between the frontier uh, to your exploration, Greg Grandin, and and how kind of 
<clears throat> the Midwest is also a place yeah. where, right? Yeah. So I've been, uh, one of the things that I kind of had to do researching the book is, is come to terms with the way, um, uh, Sorry, I'm deep into my second second beer. Uh, the frontier in American. This, the thir- the third one will help if you have a third. Then it's you know. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner. Yes. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner um, conceptually kind of fucked us. So he, in in his essay, "The Frontier in American History" from 1893, he makes this argument that like there are these stages of civilization that just successively play themselves out as the American frontier moves West, it's, it's almost like a traveling theater show that like the, you know, in the, this town is going through this stage and the next town over is going through the, the like stage before that, et cetera, et cetera. And as the frontier moves West, the, they play themselves out. Um, you know, the, the, the native American followed by the trader followed by da, 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 and finally everything gets averaged out and you have a, a kind of American civilization. And I mean, like that's violent and colonial and gross kind of stuff fast, but, but it also, um, because he made that argument, he came to see the Midwest as kind of the place where America has already begun to kind of get averaged out uh, the, the place where, you know, the frontier passed through a while ago. And so this is where we're really figuring out, um, what basic like zero degree Americanness is. And so I think that's where, that's kind of the origin of, 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 of that idea, um, that Midwesterners are just sort of basic people. Um, ba- basic, yeah. basic bitches. Is that? <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, I, I would love to do like if I were a linguist and I had the research tools, I would love to find out where that phrase originated because I swear to God, it had to come from around here. <laughs> I remember when I said it, the first time I heard somebody say it, it was one of my students here and I felt awful for her. I was like, why are you calling yourself a bitch? First of all, that right. is, that is internalized misogyny. Let me mansplain it to you. But like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I was like, that's kind of harsh, dude. And and then I asked her what basic bitch meant. And she was like, oh, you know, it means somebody who likes, you know, paninis from Panera. Like, what a stupid thing to hold against yourself. <laughs> like, I, I feel like, the, the, yeah. you know, you trace that far enough back, back it's it's Frederick Jackson Turner's fault. Um, <clears throat> well, and so Grandin's got to get a handle on all of that. Well, no, I mean, it's funny that you say that. Just thinking of why that's unfortunate for somebody in terms of how one thinks is that there's so much pressure. I mean, this is somewhat ironic, but there's so much pressure to discern your identity as apart from everyone else. This is who I am. I'm, I'm a unique snowflake. And, uh, if I, you know, this is why I have to have my particular order at Starbucks is mine. Um, Otherwise, I'm a basic bitch because, you know, then I'm not me. I'm just like blending in to to whatever, you know, context and and situation that I arose from. Um, And that's a lot of pressure and it's bullshit, in fact. Right. Um, So so it's interesting that like, you know, the struggle to to say what it means to be a Midwesterner or what the Midwest is, is is that kind of um, that contradiction, like pulling one's self up from one's bootstraps, like. Um, to, to, to like set definitively something that pins us down and gives us meaning, except it's so complex and actually like contingent and there's so much history. So like, it seems like a fraught project. Yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I have nothing insightful to add that. Yeah. It's a- <laughs> well, no. Okay. So, so the, the other thing I would say is you have this great insight about what it means to be average, uh, and nor- in the, the, the part of the book about normalcy, <clears throat> because you note that like the average soil is heterogeneous, you know, so, so like in a certain sense, um, what it might mean to be average in the Midwestern sense would not erase any of that complexity and it would actually capture all of that, that nuance and, and um, yeah, heterogeneity. Yeah, I, I just I feel like I <clears throat> I feel like I spend a lot of time around people who are not willing to see themselves as as being as complex as they are. And I, I mean, I, I think I'm probably 
obsessive about this and maybe moralistic and a, a little tiresome about it because I'm, I'm a fucking teacher and I see the way that my students tell themselves very limiting things about what they are capable of and who they are. Right. And it makes me really sad. And I, I, I want to help them break out of it if I can. Yeah. The, the, speaking of averaging, you know, it's, it's like, as we, as we've talked about before with, with Max Alvarez on the podcast about how like the, the penetration of neoliberal uh, reasoning into the university has, has turned you know, it turned it from a place of like self-discovery and education to create like a broad, uh, you know, well-rounded citizenry into just like interchangeable parts for capitalism. And that my students are, I'm sorry to interrupt. You. Go ahead. No, no, you have to interrupt us. This is half of how the show runs. You have, if you don't do it, they it are terrified yeah. not to major in business. Now, yeah. some of them want also want to major in business. So like, that's fine. If you want to do that to yourself, uh, God bless you. But like, they are so scared not to, they judge themselves so harshly when they, when they don't get in or when they don't get into the business fraternity and uh, it's so depressing. I resonate with this so much. Oh my God. Because you know, you know what, Phil, that's the practical thing to do that will secure. You see, it's every moral agent has the uh, ability to control their future as long as they major in business. <laughs> and and if, they, if they major in business, they will be the next Mitt Romney. Oh, wait, no. So like, <laughs> right now, but, but they feel this way. They yeah. feel um, like if they, if they fuck up, it's all their fault and they have to do the practical thing. They can't explore anything interesting. And some class on running a business is going to make you one of the oligarchs. No, you see, it's very simple. You just have to peer in the future statistics of the expected lifetime income of oh, every uh, every major and also accounting for the fact that those the perception of profitability will cause people to jump into those majors <laughs> and drop the, the, uh, the lifetime uh, return right, down. Yeah. So you have to... <laughs> well, Already fucking happened with computer science. Yeah, yeah. and it lawyers. And lawyers. We we got sold this fucking bill of goods that like, oh, you better you better learn to code or you'll fucking die. Just like the and skills gap is bullshit. Just like the skills gap is bullshit. Just like the idea that a university freshman can hit the moving target of a neoliberal globalized economy. <laughs> what that's going to be fucking valuing four or five years from now. Yeah. In declaring major, right. that is stupid. That is the stupidest shit I could possibly. Have I, I have, I have uh, perspective. Perspective students with their parents come to like these fairs to, to you know, we have to represent the department and and the school's trying to recruit new students and all that. And so the parents will ask me questions like, if my student or my son or daughter majors in political science, what job will they have? And like, what I want to say is, I don't fucking know. But like, the, but the other thing I say, the other thing I say is like, that's the wrong question. And, and I have the whole, I have this whole spiel, right? Which I think is true, which is that like, it's hard to predict. And there are certain jobs that this degree can more likely situate you well for. But really, your best shot in, the, in capitalism is to develop certain basic skills, critical thinking, speaking, writing, communication, social intelligence. And these things are more likely to be developed in college if you enjoy what you're studying so that you do the fucking work that makes you cultivate those skills. Yep. So like, they should take a bunch of classes in dis- disparate areas until they figure out what they enjoy and it's, not, and it's less work to do the work. <laughs> That is correct, and you've got to say that, but then you've got to chase it by saying, and also, yeah. everybody is majoring in business already, right. so it's going to lower the value. It's going to lower the value of that degree. Well, I, I don't even. That's, I also a, tell them a little bit about nepotism. So the parents actually get this part of the spiel they get. I say, so uh, if you're snowflake student majors it like triple majors and minors in like spanish and physics and whatever special combination you think is going to get them the job that that you think they're going to get uh and they send the resume out a thousand places what's going to happen is they'll be dumped in the trash unless there's a personal connection because really what happens when people sift through resumes is they get a phone call instead from someone who has like a you know their daughter their cousin or somebody they recommend and like they have a trusted like recommendation and so they just they just go like they don't give a shit what the gpa was if it's like comparable they they care about like 
you know, hooking up their buddies and finding somebody that they can trust to send them somebody reliable. Like, I, I haven't, re- I haven't researched this in several years, but the last time I looked into it, the big, the big difference in terms of employability comes between having some college and having no college. Right. Like that is where you get your biggest gains. Everything else is gravy. And certainly for me, I, I mean, w- one thing I will always, I, I say some critical things about my parents book because like I love them the pieces. They're great people, but they fucking voted for Trump. So like, you're, I'm going to talk some shit about you. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, they never gave me any shit about majoring in English, even though our family was pretty working class. Um, they kind of intuitively grasped this, that the difference was he got to college. He'll probably be okay. He'll be as okay now as he's capable of being. Um, and a lot of people don't get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but to, to, to sort of circle back to my original comment there, that are okay. no worries, no worries. Um, but you know, this, this idea of, you know, the Midwest being, uh, kind of leveled out and, uh, as you talk about in the, in the kind of mid 20th century, uh, it, it was kind of the, the, the like middle, uh, like the sort of fulcrum of American political economy. And in fact, sort of the beating heart in a way, like the whole semicircle all the way around the Great Lakes was like the industrial complex, like the way that electronics and semiconductors are in, the, in like the big Chinese cities now. Um, and that was deliberately destroyed, basically, in in uh, uh, a... Uh, as as part of the the neoliberal turn and in a move against um you know planning quote unquote you know to say that like oh we just need to let the market sort of work itself out and that yeah. you know will be more efficient um and so you know you you talk about like sort of the consequences and uh, the consequences of that move but also like the the a priori impossibility of having you know, any sort of planning free marketplace and how planning shifted from democracy to Wall Street boardrooms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I got that from reading uh, Galbraith, uh, which I don't even remember how I started doing that. But like, he's an interesting guy. And unlike most economists, like you can actually fucking read him Um, like he has a reasonably he has a he has the pro style of a human being um <laughs> but he, he makes he makes that point that like it's it's all planning right i mean when when apple decides that uh oh we're we're now going to have uh we're going to make our phone harder to use fucking earphones with because we're Apple and kiss our ass. I mean, whatever the reasoning was there, I mean, you know, that, that is planning. There was always planning as long as you have, as long as you have mass production, you have fucking planning. And, and that, that's a thing. I, I, I don't know. I feel like my whole intellectual life has kind of turned on these moments when somebody spells out something that once they spell it out to you, it's like, Oh my God, that's so obvious. How the fuck did I not realize that before that there is no planning, not planning uh, debate uh, that, that that's just a meaningless smoke screen that it's a debate about who plans. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you said. Ideology is it masks that, right. That, 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 which would be otherwise obvious. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, the, the, the point which you make, uh, quite well in the book is that, you know, the, as you describe in there, like there, there was a process there that happened like relatively quickly from sort of like, you know, the early eighties into the, you know, late nineties when, you know, that you, you look at the, just the vast complex of, of supply chains and, um, you know, like built up factories and stuff and and uh uh like just vast accumulations of knowledge and and capital and you know just like effort human effort and natural resources that have been transformed to make this incredibly elaborate machine and um 
it was destroyed deliberately by people yeah. so 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 that they could make money personally the 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 yeah. the decision was incredibly costly it was a huge money loser but the people who lost the money were not the people who were making the decisions you know, it was the workers, it was the cities who had their tax base cored out, and it was the fact that all of these enormously expensive plants and factories and so on all went to rot that was just uh, pushed off the balance sheet. That's not our problem. That's your problem. And uh, hey, would you like some Oxycontin as well? <laughs> and just like yeah. you, as, and as you noted, just like Amazon fuck you amazon's gonna just deliberately not make money for a decade and that's gonna be okay right yeah. <laughs> you know so that it could be like this hegemonic thing that we choose to let become a monopoly yeah. <laughs> it's it's so stupid I, we've just we're just building the stupidest fucking dystopia for no reason uh i mean for for no good reason um yeah i um realizing how much that's true that the united states was on a um on a trajectory toward being a, a very flawed you know social democracy in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s you know the period the piketty writes about um i mean we we were on that trajectory and that's i i'm not trying to say that in a way to make america like sound good because it's still a racist uh, hegemonic empire and we suck ass in a million ways but we were on that trajectory and then the billionaires just they ruined it and realizing how true that is is the thing that has pushed me from being a social democrat a few years ago to just being a socialist now you, you have to destroy their capacity to do that again yeah no I, I think it's a really important point that you make here about look, and as leftists, we rightly understand causation as structural, and there's a structure and structure, structure, structure. But like, what you're pointing out really well is that yeah, that structure is a bunch of choices that powerful entities and people make, and that means that like we can combat those choices and we can you know fight power with power, as you say, against the neoliberal bullshit, as Carl Polanyi would point out, right? Like all these decisions, whether it's Amazon or the transcontinental railroad, all these decisions were exercises in political power by people who would benefit privately at the expense of the social and common good. And that is actually empowering and hopeful for us because it means that there's nothing inevitable. There's nothing natural about what's happening. It's a contestation. And that, that should awaken us to our role as the demos, as the people to fight against those private actors doing that. Yeah. And I don't want to be too Pollyannish, but like the movement behind Bernie Sanders is doing that in That's a right. way that I did not expect to see in my fucking lifetime. And it's, it's, so awesome. pretty, it's pretty inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Tor let's see. Towards the end of the book, you, you, you talk, you talk a bit about, this transition you you mentioned how you how you've become a bit more radicalized and started identifying as a socialist and started doing some more um like concrete activism and so on uh in in your community um and you know i think i am not alone in in sometimes wondering well gee you know uh is producing a podcast or listening to podcasts and reading lots of takes all there is to politics? Like what, what else ought we sh to be doing here? Um, and, and so maybe you, you could talk about that, you know, sort of like realization, you know, m moving towards a more kind of active, engaged, uh, kind of, uh, uh, citizen participation in, in your, uh, you know, local community and what motivated that. Um, yeah, I, I well, I I want to preface this by saying that I am more active now relative to me ten years ago, and not relative to like a normal non-neurasthenic person who can handle talking on the phone and going outside. Phil, like, this is I, not a competition. Wipe away yeah. the neoliberal <laughs> hegemonic ideology. We're not making you <laughs> rank yourself. 
Damn now, it, I, damn it, Phil! Uh, why did you elect Donald Trump personally? <laughs> you cast a deciding vote. Uh, no, I just—I don't want to sound cooler than I am. Um, but I, no, after Trump was elected, I just felt like you—you just—I don't know if I mean I think ever you've kind of spoken to to feeling this way. Um, I think everybody felt this way. Like I need to shoulder. I need to try to help shoulder the burden and, and I need to, I don't know, go out of my comfort zone more. Um, I don't know. I, I'll say a couple things about that just in a, on the off chance that they're helpful. One, um, like I, it's still a huge struggle for me. Like some weeks I can make the phone calls for Bernie and for Bernie Sanders. And sometimes I fucking can't, you know, um, sometimes I just have to go back to being an anxious shut in who reads too many books. Um, when I am able to successfully do that shit, I have, one thing I've noticed is that I respond more to hope than guilt. So for years I tried to guilt myself into doing more activisty stuff. I'd be, the, the climate is warming and, and you're just sitting around, you know, reading Marilyn Robinson for the fifth time. You fucking loser. Get out there. What the fuck is wrong with you? I'm shocked you, that didn't work. That seems like a great message. Oh, shit, you. <laughs> you fucking male idiot. I, yeah, right. I mean, when I say it out loud, it's <laughs> that doesn't fucking work. But like, how many people, I'm sorry, how many of you nerds who listen to this podcast do that shit to yourself? Stop self-flagellating. Cut it out. Doesn't help anyone. I'm guessing the number is more than one, and and I'm guessing you two have both been through that. I mean, that's a personality type thing. Yeah. If, um, if you're going to abuse yourself, at least do it for sexual pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. in in honor of your book, the Midwest might be America's genitals. It might be. Yeah. It's, it's true. Uh, uh, the uh, um, Masters and Johnson thought so, but in, <laughs> yeah, like telling, thinking about. It it, it, it it almost like hurts to hope this much, but thinking about the day Bernie Sanders becomes president and I can say that I was a tiny mm. atom in that flood uh, and, and just wanting to have been wanting to have played some role in that, like that, uh, that helps. That is a lot more likely to get me out the door. Um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, I don't know. Also, um, finding things that are close to home in some way. I mean, I, one of the big things that I remember feeling after 20, uh, after November, 2016 was that it was really fucked up that I didn't know anything about local Ann Arbor politics. I didn't know anything about state, about like Michigan state politics. And, and that was really an impetus to get, to throw myself into my union because that is, that's right there. You know, that's, that's part of my everyday habitus. Um, and I, I think people who lean left tend to think too much in terms of national elections and things like this and, and not what's right in front of us. So that helped. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, you know, Bernie, Bernie now has a shitload of money and a shitload of volunteers, all that very important, but you know, boy, if it's too much to go to, you know, New Hampshire or Nevada or South Carolina or wherever, you know, you, you, you look around your state, very likely, you know, your state representative or your state Senator, uh, sucks, yeah. uh, to yeah. some, to some degree. Right. Yeah. And you can put real pressure. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe there's somebody running a primary, maybe you could run in a primary. Um, you know, it's, it's not like a lot, a lot of these folks, nobody knows who they are. Nobody's, uh, you know, nobody's contested these elections for generations. Um, hey, and in Philly or in Pennsylvania, I think the the starting salary for uh, uh, the state house is like almost ninety thousand bucks. So you know, you get yourself a nice little chunk of change. Right, you should <laughs> fucking run, man. <laughs> yeah. I would donate. I would donate to either of your campaigns. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I, like I just that. I just got my voter registration card, so I think I'm maybe yeah. just barely eligible. <laughs> yeah, get get active. This is I, I think this is a good response that you, your book has a a lovely way of of suggesting that there's hope um in like 
the reflection that you're doing is kind of the opposite of what a Trump supporter might be doing, which is to say that whatever my struggles are, I'm going to kind of unthinkingly uh, let this strong man be the answer to all of my problems and just kind of like project onto them um, the solution and project onto these scapegoats, the problems. Whereas like what I think you're encouraging is some real reflection about the history of this country, the problems in ourselves, the problems in our, our politics that then calls us to be responsible to the complexity and to kind of finding a way forward collectively. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't know if there's, there's a weird conservative part of my brain, which, I mean, it makes sense. I grew up conservative. I grew up fundamentalist. Like, you know, I, I, um, I was a Baptist, like whole nine yards. Um, and not one of the like cool, fun liturgical Baptists that drink. Um, and I, one thing that intellectually I got from that, that has never gone away is, is the idea that you should actually do stuff related to your beliefs. Like (laughs) action. Yeah. You should try to act on them. Um, and, and fun. I, I, I don't know how fundamentalism has has wound up being quite the thing it is. That's something else I would like to get a handle on. But you know, uh, when I was a kid, I, it was very impressed on me that like I shouldn't just have a set of academic beliefs about God. You know, I, I should occasionally do stuff, and that part was good. The stuff they wanted me to do and the beliefs they wanted me to have. In, in many cases were not good, but I don't know. It's fundamentalism can, at least in the seventies, early eighties, uh, you, you could pick up a certain moral seriousness from it. Um, and I know that sounds crazy because we look at fundamentalism now and it looks like fucking righteous gemstones, um, which is <laughs> grift, but I don't know that that was my experience. Yeah. Um, I've just, I've got one last question for you. Uh, you 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 have a f- sort of funny anecdote after the 2016 election that you you had a sort of prepper fantasy moment. Um, I know where <laughs> where you thought ah, I'm just going to go to the countryside and like buy some sandbags and a and a rifle and. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and you have a good, good, an interesting little meditation in there about where that thought probably came from. So could could you sort of go into that for us a little bit? Yeah, um, yeah, that was that was my reaction to the. Well, my first reaction to the 2016 election was audibly to wish for my own death, which was. Uh, not helpful. Um, and, and my wife, uh, owned me real hard about it. You you don't have any right to despair, blah, blah, blah. Uh, which she was totally right about. And then my second reaction was, um, this, uh, this, this place is fucking hopeless, man. Uh, and, um, at the time we had a couple of like former students of ours who were like like renting the guest room or whatever. And uh, one of them was Muslim and they were both black. And, and I was thinking like, this, this country is going to eat them alive. You know, uh, like I've, I've, I've got to, it's, it's that thing of like growing up conservative and then becoming a leftist, but you've still got some of the conditioning. Uh, I've got to protect everyone. I've, I've got to protect my little my little homestead so we're gonna gonna go out to the country and we're gonna hide out and i'm gonna learn how to shoot and do tough guy shit and uh and then i immediately of course realized that i was um that that was literally insane uh on 50 different levels um and and that that's when the concepts of settler colonialism became less of a fancy sounding academic phrase for me i was like oh shit that's that's what that is i've i've in i've imbibed the idea that a real man is is kind of the security officer of a nuclear family or imitation nuclear family and that i'm failing if i'm not doing that 
Which is really interesting because you have a great piece you wrote up, uh, I, I think also for the Hedgehog Review on masculinity that everyone should read, um, that we, we can link to that as, as well. Sure. And I wonder if, if that realization in this whole fantasy happened before or after you had those reflections, because um, I think they're... No, it ins- I mean, that was part of the inspiration for, for the masculinity essay. It was me having that completely insane and unhealthy thought. Um, and actually, it was um, my friend Barbara McClay, who is, uh, I think, one of the best writers. She is the best writer of her generation. I don't know uh, how the fuck I got lucky enough to have her as my editor, but she um, she asked me to write about masculinity because, um, <laughs> I don't know, she wanted someone to explain it because <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I yeah. And, and so that was kind of, I thought, well, I'll, I'll start with that. It's really interesting. I know this is, we're wrapping up here and maybe this is the last question for you, but um, speaking of the settler colonial um, mentality and, and kind of the delusions of this kind of toxic masculinity and, and the narratives and, and fantasies that uh, we kind of imbibe or that influence us in, in these kind of harmful ways, uh, that's a contrast with a lot of your discussion in the book about utopia which of course you know thomas more is no place and uh and a good place right like it's it's both a place that doesn't exist but also maybe an inspiration or, or something some ideal to move towards <clears throat> so as against these kind of delusions that maybe lead people to be trumpians or lead people into these fantasies uh, inspired by uh you know those histories and, and ideologies and narratives that are unhelpful unhealthy and harm our social fabric and our social good um, you know, what as the left and what as human beings can we do with the right kind of imagination, with the right kind of utopian thinking or demanding? What did you find uh, in writing this and, and in living your life uh, that helps helps maybe give people some hope uh, to think the future, to think possibility in a way that um, is not a bad delusion, but might be uh, a very helpful fantasy indeed? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, uh, a helpful fantasy. There are. I, I am. I, I try not to be too heavy-handed about this in the book, but uh, and and in other venues as well. But I mean, I I am a Christian, um, and I think some people would label that a, a helpful. I think a sympathetic non-believer would na- would label that a, a helpful fantasy. Like Ryan, Ryan's a yeah. sympathetic non-believer. I was afraid to even bring this up because I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to bore you, Ryan. No, you're good. <laughs> Are you you're kidding? Good. Gets, nothing gets Ryan more excited than than. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, like Ryan has read the entire Bible. Is that uh, not, more than once? Yeah, more than once. Ryan, uh, I think he's more likely to have read the entire Bible (laughs) than we are, if I remember correctly. Ryan, I think, got really pumped reading Herbert McCabe and 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 being kind of inspired by by uh, the politics there, right, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Martin Luther King. You know, I uh, homiletics, the Gospels, prophets, good stuff. You know, I'm like Thomas Jefferson. He had the the his personal. uh, gospels where you just cut out all the miracles. <laughs> this, is, this is the only thing you have in common with, with Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Also, Ryan invented the swivel chair. <laughs> but, sorry. <laughs> he, he had red hair. Um, yeah, no, I I, um, I, I mean, I, I obviously don't consider my Christianity to, to be a delusion, but I, I think we... I think we have to remember, and and you've mentioned that this is a a theme of the book. uh, We don't know everything that we're capable of. We don't know. We don't know how the human story ends. We don't, we don't know any of that stuff. And it makes us feel smart to say that it's uh, we're shit and it's all going to end in tears, but we don't know that there is, there is more in us than we are aware of. And, uh, and I, I believe that and, and having gone to the, you know, gone to having gone to that length, I'm also willing to go ahead and believe in, uh, you know, a peasant Jewish lady becoming pregnant with God because they're both equally crazy. Uh, but you know, there it is. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, and you know, maybe in the in the spirit of things, we could note that uh, there was a at, at time of recording uh, to uh, today there was a election in Ireland uh, where uh, Sinn Fein came uh, uh, came out of nowhere. Apparently, I mean, I wasn't really watching the polls, uh, but to to get the uh, largest percentage of initial votes. There's a quite a complicated election system, and I don't quite have my head around it over there. But, but it appears that in any sort of normal sense, Sinn Fein came in first place. They very likely won't be able to form a government, probably not unless there's like a sort of a redo, uh, because apparently they didn't even uh, run enough candidates to take advantage of all the votes they got. But. This is the best result for the left in Ireland, maybe ever. Uh, I mean, I'm not really up on my Irish history. I, I am apparently Irish American, but I know very little about Ireland. But, anyways, you know, I'm 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 as Irish as when they do St. St. Patrick's Day parades and just dye the 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 uh, river green. That's uh, that's pretty much the level I'm operating at. Nevertheless. Warm solidarity to all of our Irish comrades out there. Hell yeah. You know, it Fuck does yeah. It does seem like a, a real socialism or barbarism moment, you know, it's sort of splitting into two camps. And, you know, here's hoping that 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 Ireland, you know, ma- manages to at least get some sort of a social democratic government, kick out those fucking tax cheats, you know, ma- Get all that get all that money that Apple is stashing in Ireland and take it for yourself, damn it. <laughs> oh, yes. You don't need to give it to us Americans like that that they cheated out of, honestly. We don't really need it. What you need it more, you know. And so, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. But that's boy, a great that's- point, Ryan. Whether whether you're a believer in the Christian sense and the immaculate conception is for you, or whether you're secular and like the Steelers immaculate reception is something that you know about. <laughs> Either way, either way, we're saying that the impossible is possible, so demand the impossible. And we thank you for your contribution, Phil, for your your writing, for your lecturing, and all the other forms of teaching that you do, uh, for all your essays, for fighting the good fight, uh, and embracing what it means to be human and how fraught that is. So thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we're going to do this thing, baby. We're going to win. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Thanks, guys. Cheers. And the book, one more time, is called uh, Midwest Futures. We'll link it in the description. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>